everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome to the People's Forum. We are a movement incubator in a space that generates political education, culture, media for people's movements in the United States and abroad. And we're equally excited for tonight, partly because since our founding only five years ago, we've been very openly committed and very vocal about our support for the Palestinian people and their struggle to end Zionist occupation. We also have firmly believed that in that struggle, it is our responsibility and duty to welcome all voices in opposition to this occupation. Across the spectrum, inside Israel, as well outside of it. So we are deeply honored to have two dear comrades with us tonight who will be sharing important perspectives on this struggle. We're honored to welcome Katie, who's an old friend of the house, a militant journalist, someone who's brave and often willing to talk the stories that very few others are willing to share and, and present. And we're honored to welcome a new friend, Miko Pellet, who we hope this will not be your last time visiting the People's Forum, but that this continues to be a new space where we continue to denounce the atrocities, and organize against Israeli apartheid and occupation. So welcome to the People's Forum. We will be having an exciting program. There will be a space for Q&A later on. We'll pass it on to Katie. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much to the People's Forum. Thank you also to Brad and Tyler, who are here, who work on the show. The show couldn't happen without them. And of course, thank you so much to Miko Pella for joining. So we are going to be talking about Miko's book, which is excellent. And this is a very exciting moment because this is the first live taping of the Katie Halper show that we've done since before the pandemic. And it's the first live event I've done since being censored and fired by The Hill. One of the upsides of that was also reuniting with Miko. So thank God for small favors like being canceled. We are going to start the show and the interview shortly. But first, Miko, tell us what we're going to see right now. So let me also thank everybody for coming on this rainy day to be part of this and uh, thank the People's Forum for hosting us. This is a wonderful, wonderful space. It's really nice to be here. Thank my publisher, Helena, for all of her help and her work uh, in putting this book together. We've been friends for a long time now. It's been 10 years since the book came out. Thank you, Katie, for coming down and, and hosting. So what we're going we're gonna to start with, uh, I've been with a short clip from a documentary that I started working on with a friend just before COVID. And then, of course, uh, COVID came and everything was disrupted. And then we picked it up again. And it started just with me talking about Palestine. And the idea was to get little clips of me, little snippets, talking about different aspects of Palestine. Then we decided to turn it into a documentary. Then we went to Palestine together and started uh, filming in Palestine. Then we went to Palestine again. And it just kind of has a lot of different facets to it. But it connects to the story of the book. It connects to the journey and it talks about the journey. 
and the people that I've met along the way and the important work that they do in Palestine. So we're going to see like a seven, eight minute clip from that uh, documentary, which is going to come out in full at the end of this year. That's the plan, at least. So that's where we are. So we're going to show that video and then we will be right back. We talked a lot. We talked for many hours. I would come here Thursday, and we talk all day, and then go to the protest. And all the time we have a new idea. Awesome. What? Do you remember the first time you met Miko? Yeah. He was in the beginning of his journey in the West Bank involved in the normalization project. We start talking and he want to come and visit. It's not easy for me to accept Israel in that time. The only image in my mind for the Israeli in that time, just the soldiers who are shooting. Or the jailer who closed the, the door on my face. Shabak officer who tortured me and the settler who killed my sister. This is the Israeli. In that day, we have the demonstration. The people throwing the stones, big stones, the small stones. And we start talking about the stones. I told him when we are walking on the, the fields and we feel any danger, snake, wolf, dog, something like that, we directly go to the ground and take a stone. It's protection, not attacking. This is a big snake, this soldier and this jeeps. We are directly going to protect ourselves by the stones. I never saw people standing like Nabi Saleh without apology. If you come here, you accept the struggle. But how can I accept you, the Israeli? It's hard journey in my head. For Miko, it's the same. For that, we become part. I had never met Palestinians before. I mean, I saw Palestinians. Growing up as an Israeli, you see Palestinians. They do the landscape in the garden. They, um, they collect the trash. Right? So you hear them speak Arabic. All the construction sites, you know, all the laborers are Palestinians. Because of my father's work, I met one or two Palestinian politicians a couple of times. But overall, no. I mean, we live, Israelis live in, in, in a sphere where Palestinians don't exist. 
they walk through, they go in and out of the, of the frame, but they don't really exist within the frame. There was no reason uh, to meet Palestinians. And this is even though I lived in, you know, in Jerusalem, my entire growing up was in Jerusalem. The roads were always paved and beautiful, always well lit. There was always running water as much as I wanted. It was very safe. And the journey that I took was from that very safe and very comfortable place, place of privilege, to the sphere of the other, the sphere of the occupied. And in taking that journey, I discovered what Palestine is and what it means to be an Israeli. It was known as one of the richest villages in, in the area of Jerusalem. It was populated from the 7th century till April 9th, 1948. When you visit the location, you see about 70 empty Palestinian houses. The feeling of the ghosts of Palestinian life, it's very, very powerful. I'm Omar Al-Ghubari. I'm uh, a Palestinian from a small village south to Nazareth. My village was attacked also in 1948 and all the families forced to leave the village because of that attack. Now I work for Zohrot, an NGO based in Tel Aviv. Zohrot is a word in Hebrew, means remembering. Hundreds of Palestinian villages were destroyed in the first years of the country. Israeli authorities tried to hide this history and these facts from the public, including the Israelis. I've been here dozens of times, and every time it's painful, I cannot imagine how really people can do this, these things. Marhaba. Masbouh Sawir. I'm كيفك شو اخبارك؟ كيفك؟ اهلين شو اخبارك؟ اهلين كيف حالك؟ الحمد لله زمان الحمد لله الحمد لله مرحبا ملان كيفك؟ شو اخبارك؟ كيفك؟ تمام الحمد لله يسعدك كيفك؟ الحمد لله This is amazing that you have all of these protests all recorded all recorded Yeah it's good that they're still on YouTube It's really important Must have many hours Seven years every Friday Here uh, in the village, we began to do non-violent protest, singing, chanting, holding flags, Friday after Friday. It's a way of non-violent resistance. What we are doing is just expressing a desire to live. We are here, and we have a right to be here. I'm a mother. I'm a woman, I'm an activist, I'm a Palestinian, which is, I think, 
it's the most difficult things to have in one person. I believe that I have to keep fighting. I have to keep resisting. This is what I'm trying to teach my children. Fight, but stay human, which is very difficult to do, to talk with them about love while they are facing hatred every day. They are just children. It's not normal to talk with a 10-year-old child about his right under incubation. I hope that one day all this pain and all this suffering, all this abnormality will come to end and they will be able to, to live their normal life. But till that time, they have to keep fighting, they have to keep resisting, they have to never give up, otherwise they gonna lose everything. This is exciting. So we get to tell the story of your book a little bit. We should just tell people what it's about. The General Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, it really is fascinating. It was written 10 years ago, and it's about Miko Pelled, who is the son of a decorated Israeli general. He's the grandson of one of the signatories to Israel's independence. He is the uncle of a young woman who was tragically killed in a suicide bombing. Her name is Smadar. And he somehow is a very staunch advocate for a one-state solution. He was born and raised a proud Zionist, and he's evolved into the person sitting here before you, who is, again, a staunch advocate for the one-state solution. His father also went from being a, I guess, a proud Zionist to, he didn't stop being a Zionist, but he was, he became a supporter of a two-state solution. And it's just a really good book. It's fascinating historically, personally, and politically. So I highly recommend it. And I wanted to start out by asking you about something we've, we've spoken about before, but the killing of your niece, Smadar, who was just shy of 14 years old. Can you tell us about her and also tell us about how her death affected your political and personal trajectory? Boy, we're delving right into it, aren't we? Your question is the toughest part of the whole story. I mean, without a doubt, it is the absolute hardest thing to talk about, the hardest thing to write about, and the hardest thing to experience, the death of a 13-year-old girl. And add to that, under such horrific circumstances as a suicide attack. So, you know, it's, if, where do we start, right? When she was killed, it was 1997. And those of us who are old enough to remember the late 90s, the second half of the 1990s, were incredibly, incredibly bloody in Palestine. Benjamin Netanyahu, by the way, was prime minister then too. Incredibly, incredibly bloody. And the, one, of the, one of the horrific attacks that took place was uh, the one where she was killed. And I mean, you don't know what to think. You don't know what to feel. You don't know how to act. I mean, this is not something that you can possibly be prepared for. So, you know, I was living in the US. I took the first plane back to Jerusalem. And by the time I got there, it was already the front page news. Now, of course, attacks like that are always front page news and, you know, in Israeli papers. 
there was an additional element here because the granddaughter of somebody who was two things. He was a well-known general, very well-respected general, retired general, but also his second half of his life, he became Mr. Peace with Palestine. Granted, Peace with Palestine under Zionist conditions, which is a two-state solution. But still, Mr. Peace with Palestine, he met with Arafat, he met with a lot of Palestinian leaders. He was known as that. He had already passed away by then. And here his granddaughter is killed by Palestinians. So, of course, this is front page news. And as I arrive at my sister's apartment, you know, you see the paper, the morning papers right there, and there it is. So, you know, I describe these moments uh, in the book, you know, getting there, seeing my, my sister and, and all of that. And then her apartment was packed, obviously, with people who came to mourn, but also with journalists. 6 a.m. to midnight every single day. Uh, well, during the, at least the first seven days of Shiva, the Jewish morning time. And then uh, she was asked at one point about revenge and retaliation. And, you know, her two sons were in the military at the time. And so there was a sense, you know, do we go and we show them and we, you know, we take a few of them out. And, and um, her response was, no real mother would want this, to see this happen to any other mother. You want to respond to this tragedy by creating more tragedy? By killing more people? You know, she was just, the whole idea was abhorrent to her, completely abhorrent. She just couldn't fathom that, you know, the, that notion. And of course, her response created even more news. It was even bigger news. Because now here's this Israeli mother who's mourning the death of her child, saying she does not want to see more death. Quite the opposite. And she made it very clear, and uh, her husband too, that they point the finger at the Israeli government, at Netanyahu actually. Um, because she said, what do we expect when we treat people like this, when there's a horrific oppression, the killing of Palestinian children, the arrest, the home demolitions, and on and on and on, going on for decades. What do we expect that we're not going to pay a price? And I'm hearing and seeing all of this and experiencing all of this, and of course, the emotional upheaval and all that. And then you wonder, well, what are you going to do? I came back to the U.S., and I was living in this little paradise called Coronado, which is a small town adjacent to San Diego in Southern California, uh, where the sun is always shining and people have beautiful cars and nice homes and everybody's on the beach. Who wants to hear about this kind of thing? Nobody. So what do you do with it all? And so that kind of drove me to thinking, you know, what is it that I am taking away from this? And again, if you take a look at the larger picture, you know, three young men, three young Palestinians killed themselves in this process of killing these other people. You know, how do you wrap your head around something like that? You can't just say, well, suicide bombers, they're crazy. I mean, you can't do that. It doesn't make sense. And so I began this journey. I began this journey, the journey of an Israeli in Palestine at that point. Thank you very much for sharing that. And is there anything you want to share about Smadar, who she was? Well, I mean, what can you say? A cute, sweet 13-year-old girl. I mean, she is this, you know, 13-year-old girl. She's sweet. She's smart. She's promising. She's, you know. You just mentioned how your sister, in part, blamed Netanyahu for her death. And your sister also knew him. What can you tell us? I mean, trigger warning to everyone. We're going to hear about Netanyahu. But what can you tell us about him from knowing him personally? So, you know, his nickname is Bibi. And we knew him as Bibi. And he was, he's about the same age as my sister. 
they were good friends. His first wife was my sister's best friend. I mean, they, it was it was best friend. I mean, we knew him. He, you know, he would come over. I remember going over to his house, uh, to their to their house, and you know, he was an officer in Israel, was one of Israel's elite commando units. And as a kid, you look at this guy showing up in his uniform, and you know, the 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 gun kind of slung over his shoulder, and it's just this wow, you know, you just adore this thing. You want to be like that when you grow up. And I remember later on being a little bit older, he would come back. He was a reservist in this commando unit and he would come back from these heroic missions. Once he had a kind of a flesh wound in his arm, which of course made him even more heroic. And then uh, we grew up and we discussed, he got into politics and it was very clear that this man is a corrupt, ambitious politician who will stop at nothing to get to the top. And that's exactly, of course, what he did. And then um, he was prime minister when this happened. So he called, of course. And he was told, because, you know, typically the prime minister will come and, and, you know, and help express their sorrow. And he was told not to come. He called and he was told, do not come. We do not want you here. And to say that, number one, to a prime minister, but number two, also to somebody who was a kind of used to be a close friend, was a big thing. And that's what my sister told him on the phone, do not come. And uh, it was very clear that the finger was pointed at him as, you know, the Israeli government, the Israeli prime minister, as responsible for what had happened, without any question, without any doubt. So that was kind of the backstory to the whole, uh, this whole thing of Netanyahu being prime minister at the time. Speaking of your family and Israeli prime ministers, you write in your book about how your father saw through the Oslo Accords, the negotiations. And didn't think it was actually going to lead to a two-state solution. He thought that Yitzhak Rabin was being disingenuous. So two questions. Why did he think that? And were you there with him ideologically? Or were you still hopeful that a two-state solution could work at that point? Well, so my father, he was of the same generation as Rabin. So they had worked together throughout their military career very closely. So they knew each other very well. At some points, they were friends. Some points, they were not so friends. But, you know, they worked together. They were, they were you know, comrades in arms. And then uh, when the Oslo Accords started, where the process began, and there was this famous handshake, you know, in the, in the White House lawn, my father wrote an article saying, you know, Rabin crossed the Rubicon, and this is the beginning of something new. And he was very, you know, he was very supportive of this. A year later, so this is, this is September of 1993, about a year later, my father gave a, an interview in one of the Israeli papers, and the headline was, Mati Pellet says, Rabin does not want peace. Rabin was getting the Nobel Peace Prize at the time. And so for somebody who knew him to say he doesn't want peace, and somebody who, you know, but he read the Oslo Accords. He actually read the Accords. And he said, this is not going to lead to peace. This has nothing to do with peace. This is... Only Israel strengthening its hold on what, you know, supposedly should become a Palestinian state one day. He said they are, they are disregarding all of their commitments. They are uh, treating Arafat with contempt. They're treating the Palestinians with contempt. And this is not going to lead to peace. And then my father passed away about a year after that. But his very last article was titled A Requiem to Oslo. And this was 1995. When people were still celebrating Oslo, people still thought that Oslo was going to bring to peace. Um, now, I wasn't really involved in any of this until a couple of years later when, when Smadar was killed. And um, 
you know, I would read the things that my father wrote and, and heard what he said. And, it, you know, of course, it made, it made sense to me. So, yeah, I was, uh, you know, I wasn't deeply involved as I am right now with this, but it seemed to me that he was definitely knew what he was talking about. Yeah. When do you think the last time a two-state solution was actually possible? I don't think it was ever possible. I think the two-state the two-state solution was a creation. So you know, two-state solution had several you know several iterations. The first one was this insane notion of the partition of Palestine that the United Nations came up with in nineteen at the end of nineteen forty-seven, which was absurd. Somehow partitioning the land, creating this very strange map, giving the small Jewish community in Palestine, the larger part of the country, denying the Palestinians a voice in any of this, you know, those imposing this idea on the Palestinians, it wasn't going to work. It was, it was an insane idea. But that was the first iteration. Israel, of course, ignored it, went ahead with a campaign of ethnic cleansing of 1948. By, you know, early, mid-1949, it was a done deal. Most of Palestine became Israel. Then after 1967, there was a group of Zionists, like my father and a few others, who reinvented the two-state solution and said, well, we can go back to the idea of two states, but in a, in a, in a reality that is much more favorable to us, where we keep 80% of the country, but we still recognize that the Palestinians have some rights and give them the right to self-determination on a small portion of Palestine. This new, this creation that was made by Israel called the West Bank, which was just, you know, somebody drew it on a map and the Gaza Strip, and that'll be Palestine. And that way we can have peace with these people that we, we're going to have to make peace with at some point. So this was kind of the next step of the two-state solution, which was much more favorable, of course, to Israel. But this could never have, now these people, like my father, were pretty prominent people or had a prominent career at one point, but then they became renegades. And this was never going to work because Zionism is a zero-sum game. All of the land of Israel belongs to you and me as Jews. That's it. The Arabs are invaders and they have no rights. This is a Zionist perspective. And therefore, every Jew you know, around the world has a right to that land and Palestinians do not. You know, that's why they use the name, the, you know, the Jewish state and not you know, the Israeli state. And by the way, Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro is here, and he's the expert on this divide between what it means to be what Zionism is and what Judaism is. And so that that became clear that there was never going to be a possibility that the Zionist state would ever allow, would ever recognize a Palestinian presence within the land of Israel. And they came up with this idea that Jordan is the Palestinian state, and all kinds of, you know, all kinds of things like that. Speaking of the rabbi. You, in your book, The New Introduction, so this is the 10-year anniversary edition of the book, and you mention an interaction with the Orthodox community that was very surprising to you and inspiring. And I know that you're working on something on that now. Can you talk to us about that? Sure, yeah. Some people may know, may have noticed that there is, uh, when you have, especially it's true, I think, here in New York, when there's a Palestine event or Palestine protest, you see the ultra-Orthodox Jews coming with their Palestine flags and so on. Now, I grew up in Jerusalem, not far from one of these communities, the ultra-Orthodox communities in, in Jerusalem. And uh, being a good Israeli, you learn to hate the Arabs and you learn to hate the Jews. These Jews, the Jews that look like Jews and live like Jews. And we knew that they don't serve in the army, which means they're parasites. And we knew that they burned the Israeli flag, which of course makes them traitors. And we knew that we're supposed to hate them and that was it. 
and this is still a winning ticket in, in Israeli politics, you know, hating them, hating the Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox Jews. And one day, it's 2014, Israel was bombing the hell out of Gaza. Some of you may remember. I was driving, I was in Jerusalem and I was driving and I, I, parked, I parked the car near, the, near Mea Sharim. Mea Sharim is, is the oldest, one of the oldest neighborhoods in Jerusalem and it's an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood. And they have these posters that they post on the walls. It was this cry about the crimes of the Zionists once again and what they're doing to people in Gaza. And I was looking at this and I remembered what I knew from when I was a child, that they were opposed to the state and they were anti-Zionist, which at the time I thought was a bad thing. And now I'm reading this and I'm thinking, how did they know? I mean, how is it that they knew that this thing was bad when so many of us still believed in Zionism and Israel and so forth? And why are they opposed to this whole thing? And then we had, there was a protest in Washington, D.C. There was a delegation from Neture Carta, which is a particular activist group within the community. And I went up and spoke to some of the rabbi, to the rabbi there, and we kind of began a relationship and started talking about. And then I realized this whole world, this whole world of anti-Zionist, ultra-Orthodox Jews. And uh, like I said, Rabbi Shapiro is here. He wrote probably the most important book. It's called The, the Empty Wagon. It's a 1,500-page book explaining this, not only that it's an opposition to Zion, that Judaism is opposed to Zionism, but Zionism is actually the main nemesis of Judaism and why. So that was the, a kind of a second journey that I embarked on, and I'm, I'm working on a book about this. And I visited communities in New York. I visited Rabbi Shapiro uh, and uh, other, other communities. I visited, uh, and I'm in touch with communities in London and in Jerusalem. And the ones who live in Palestine... I'll say two things. I don't want to talk about it too long. I could talk about it all day. But two, two interesting things. One is, you know, people are always impressed when they hear about Israelis who refuse to serve in the military. Well, that community, there are thousands of young men and women who refuse to serve, and they pay a very heavy price. We never hear about it. We never see their picture. It's never in the news. But they are arrested. They're tortured. They're beaten. Their communities are invaded by the police. It's horrible what they go through because they stand up and they refuse to serve in the, in the army. Uh, which is which is really, I think, quite heroic. And um, and uh, their stance stems from their uh, their faith as Jews. And what again came as a surprise to me, and comes as a surprise to a lot of people, that the whole idea of sovereignty in the Holy Land is contradictory to Jewish law, contradicts Jewish law. Jewish sovereignty in the Holy Land contradicts Jewish law, which is, of course, exactly the opposite of what the Zionists are claiming. So that was very interesting to me, and that's why I decided I was going to I was going to kind of delve into this and, and write about this because it's an aspect of this of this thing that people are of you know of this larger story that people are not aware of. Let's talk about the elections, which are I think on everyone's minds. What happened? I think what happened was actually well it was expected. I mean, if you pay attention to Israeli politics, it was obvious that the children had their day to play and now daddy's back. You know, it was kind of some kind of a misunderstanding, you know, daddy was pushed away for a little bit and now he's back. The real politician, the real king is back. And that's Netanyahu. I don't know if anybody even remembers who the names of the two prime ministers that were prime ministers of Israel the last year or two were, but yeah, Lapid and Bennett, yeah. They will be forgotten. Nobody's going to remember them. But Netanyahu is back. 
It was obvious that he was going to come back. He's the only guy that he's the only politician that's really respected. I think since Ariel Sharon, the next big name is is Benjamin Netanyahu. But what's really problematic is more even than his return is the fact that he owes his return to the people who are disciples of a racist thug by the name of Mayor Kahana. And some of you may remember the you know the, they call him Rabbi. I think it's terrible to call him a Rabbi. Uh, but Mayor Kahana was uh, the founder of the JDL, the Jewish Defense League, which is now recognized as a terrorist organization by the FBI. He had a platform that called for the forced transfer of Arabs from, from, from Palestine, for creating uh, separate beaches and schools and towns and communities for Israelis, for Jews only, and that sort of thing. Now, some of that has already happened without him, but still, he was, and he was actually elected to the Knesset in 1984. And, uh, but nobody would even dream of allowing him to be part of a government, of giving him a seat at the table. You know, even, uh, you know, it was, it was a right-wing government at the time in the, in the 80s, but still nobody would even come close to him in the Knesset. Now, his actual students, his actual disciples, not just ideologically, certainly ideologically, but actual people who learned from him, who worked with him, they are the third largest block in the house, in the chamber, in, in the Israeli Knesset. And they are Netanyahu's ticket to back to power. Because with them and a few other smaller parties, he has a very comfortable majority. And they are going to demand, and they were going to get, a seat at the table in the biggest way. They're going to get the most important portfolios, they're going to be part of the defense apparatus. They're going to be part of the internal security apparatus. They're going to be sitting in, in some of the choicest positions within the Israeli government. And that is dangerous. Now, certainly none of these guys killed as many Palestinians as Netanyahu or some of these other people who were in government before this. But I think Palestinians are going to look back at this past year, which was a record number of Palestinians being killed, as the good old days when these guys are in power. People are going to look back at what we've seen so far, which is absolutely horrifying, as the good old days. Because not only are these people now in key positions, which means life for Palestinians is going to be much, much worse, their base is empowered. Their base, these thugs, these racist, militant, armed thugs that are swarming the entire country, they're not only in the West Bank, they're, all, they're everywhere. And they're never held accountable anyway, but now they're empowered. They're going to be out there much, much more. And it also shows that they actually have a lot more support within Israeli society. The, the, you know, the elements of Israeli society that you wouldn't associate with them normally, kind of they're called the settlers, um, that you wouldn't normally associate with them, but they have very, very broad support. Otherwise, they would not have been able to get as many seats in the Knesset as they did. So that is really, really, really worrisome. That is where we should be concerned about. And that is why I've been saying, and I say over and over again, the biggest piece that's missing from the conversation of, on Palestine is there are no guarantees for the safety and security of Palestinians. There, is no, there are no mechanisms, mechanisms. Palestinians don't have an army. They don't have a military force. They've got a few groups here and there with, you know, with guns and a handful of bullets. Who is going to support? Who is going to protect Palestinians? Who is going to defend Palestinians? Nobody. There's nobody there to defend them. There's nobody there to protect them. And I mean physically, because physically their lives 
of course, have always been in danger, but now it's going to be a much, much worse, much, much more dangerous. The imminent danger for the lives and the safety of Palestinians has to be, as people of conscience, this has to be our most important concern right now. Because what we are going to see coming forward, like I said, moving forward, is going to make this last year look like the good old days. It's that bad. It's that serious. I saw, so one of the students of Kahani is Idmar Ben-Gavir, right? Who likes to wave around his gun. And I saw one of his spokesmen say to NBC, it was kind of shocking. To, he just said the quiet part out loud. An NBC correspondent was like, is what you're proposing with the, you know, best, basically ethnic cleansing. He didn't use that word, but that doesn't seem like a democracy. And the spokesman was like, well, Israel wasn't really uh, established as a democracy. It was established as a Jewish state, which was like, oh, interesting. Okay. And speaking of Palestinians and solidarity and safety, can you tell us about Isa Amro? Sure. So Isa Amro um, is a Palestinian human rights defender, recognized internationally as a human rights defender, who established a what is today, I believe, the most effective grassroots organization in Palestine called Youth Against Settlements. If you've been to Palestine, especially if you've been on tours, then Hebron is one of the stops and Youth Against Settlements in the old city of, of Hebron is, is, is one of the places you go to and they provide tours and so forth. And he created this incredible organization called Youth Against Settlements. And I won't go to the entire story, but his story is absolutely remarkable. The man is brilliant. He is a master at uh, civil disobedience and you know, nonviolent resistance. And everybody wants him dead. The settlers who live right next to him and these people, these Kahana types like Ben Gvir and others who are, that's what, the place that he's protecting is exactly the place they want to take. And they want him dead. The soldiers who are everywhere in the old city of Hebron want him dead. And the Palestinian Authority hates him because he talks about their corruption and they want him dead. And the only reason this man is still alive, and uh, if, anybody is a, if anybody fits the description of a hero, is him. The only reason he's alive is because he does have some international recognition and international support. And um, recently, the army declared just the house where he lives and operates his center, just that house as a closed military zone. Not for the first time. And he was sitting there alone in that house, settlers living just all around, soldiers protecting the settlers. And surrounding him, making sure that this military, uh, closed military zone order is, you know, is obeyed and nobody goes in and out and he's alone. And, you know, we talked about this before. If a year ago, two years ago, somebody would have suggested that the Israelis would assassinate Shirin Abu Akleh, nobody, nobody would have said it was possible. Nobody would have said that assassinating Shirin Abu Akleh would be possible or would ever happen. You know, it happened because she was high profile. She was well known. She was a journalist. I mean, there was no reason to expect it or think about it. Um, and she was assassinated and there were some protests and there were some, you know, a few people, you know, said it was wrong, but I mean, it's done. There's not going to be an investigation. Nobody's going to look into it. It's over. Um, the FBI said, I think they recently said they're going to investigate. The Israelis won't cooperate. It's done. It's done. He could be next. And he's actually a much more likely target because the settlers and the soldiers have already pointed guns at him 
loaded guns at him. And they were this close to pulling the trigger. And he's got a 10-year-old son. And the possibility of his son becoming an orphan now, tomorrow, the next day, is v the likelihood is very high. And like I said before, who is there? Who, where are we? Where is anybody to talk, the, you know, to talk about the safety and security, guaranteeing the safety and security of Palestinians? Palestinian activists, Palestinian journalists, and just Palestinians, you know, want to go to work in the morning and send their kids to school. They are not safe. They could be killed any moment, and there is no one, no one is going to pay the price. And Isa has become, you know, he's, he's a, he is a hero. He stands alone often. I mean, people come, he's got international support. He's got support of some, some Palestinians, of course, that, that work with him, that he's, that he's cultivated this, this, you know, younger, younger generation of, of, of activists. Um, but there are no guarantees that he won't be killed tonight, tomorrow, the next day. And then there'll be some protests and his picture will show up on social media. And Bernie Sanders will say, yes, it's a terrible shame. And that's going to be it. And that's going to be the end of it. And uh, like I said, I think that's a, probably the most serious, the most serious uh, lack within this conversation about Palestine is the fact that there's nobody there talking about the safety and security of Palestinians. And of course, we can't all go there, although we probably should. It'd be nice if we did. But we can't all go there and stand there. So there has to be something else. And Asa is an example, and he will say this too. You know, he said, I'm one of many. I'm not the only one. There are many. You saw some of the faces, some of the names in the, in the clip uh, that we showed earlier. Um, there's no guarantee that they won't be dead tomorrow. And then what? And this is precisely, I think, indicative of what the reality in Palestine is right now. Speaking of solidarity, can you talk about the difference between the way the uh, Ukrainian resistance is portrayed from the way Palestinian resistance is portrayed? If there is a difference, lead in question, but yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, let's consider this for a moment, okay? $3.8 billion of our tax money, tax dollars that we pay, goes as a foreign aid package to Israel every single year. At a push of a button every January, it's transferred to Israel. $3.8 billion, the largest foreign aid package, U.S. foreign aid package there is, goes to a country that, by the way, doesn't need foreign aid because it's very wealthy. That money is threatening is, is makes it possible for Israel to threaten the lives of Isa Amro and Basim Tamimi and countless other Palestinians. That money goes to support one of the worst, one of the cruelest, one of the most racist regimes that exist today, the state of Israel, which we know, by the way, because Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and B'Tselem and several other human rights organizations told us and showed us in a very, very, in very, very clear and, and well-documented reports, that it is an apartheid regime. It is textbook apartheid, which is a crime against humanity. And yet, like clockwork, every January, $3.8 billion of our money is sent there and is used to do this. 
is used to maintain this. Every American house, every American store, every people, every person of conscience, every institution that has a conscience has to be flying the Palestinian flag every single day. We have to demand, we, because we're complicit, because it's our money, because it's our elected representatives that are, that are, that are allowing this to happen, we should be the first ones out there demanding it to stop. How many Palestinian flags has anybody here seen today? How many Ukrainian flags has anybody seen today? This is absurd. It's madness. It's madness. It's absolute madness. You know, I have a, uh, my, my older son works with, um, a lot with immigration, with uh, asylum seekers and so on. You know, the Ukrainians come in, they get, they go, they get the five-star treatment. Not so much, you know, people of color. Not so much people who come from Latin America or the Middle East. You know, it's madness. It's absolute madness. And what's ma even, you know, the, the epitome of this madness is that so few of us actually speak up. Is that we don't see Palestinian flags. Is that we're not out there doing more. That's the epitome of this madness. That there's so few people who actually care and want to engage and want to know about this, uh, about this issue. We are complicit in a crime against humanity in the worst possible way. The money, the weapons, the international support, the diplomatic cover. And all we see are, you know, we see, the, we see Ukrainian flags everywhere. We don't see Palestinian flags. Can you talk about the working definition of anti-Semitism? what that is, and uh, I'm sure it sounds very appealing and innocuous to people, but. So I think, you know, if we look at the, at the progress of, of, uh, of, the of the issue of Palestine and the issue of Israel, of Zionism, you know, the Zionists have been very good at promoting themselves and promoting their ideology going back 100 years. I mean, way before the state of Israel was established. You know, I always tell people, I have a poster at home advertising a lecture by my grandfather in 1920 in, I think it's Kiev or something, to talk about Eretz Israel, to talk about the Jews in the land of Israel. And he was part of this very um, uh, pretty sophisticated group of Zionists who are well-spoken, who were doctors and whatever, you know, very secular. They didn't look like Jews. They shaved their beards, of course, and they, you know, so the Europeans, the Americans felt like they could talk to these people. They didn't look like Jews, you know. And so anti-Semitism kind of didn't apply to them. And they're the predecessors of APAC and the Jewish lobby and or the Zionist lobby that we know today. Now, I think what has been happening is that there is an, there's been an erosion in the legitimacy of Israel and the legitimacy of Zionism. And to combat that, they came up with this really brilliant idea of conflating anti-Semitism with a rejection of Israel and rejection of Zionism. So they came out with this new definition. It's called the IHRA, which is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, which I don't know anybody who really knows anything about specifically who these people are. And they came out with what they call a working non-binding definition. And this definition gives several examples of what anti-Semitism is. And in the examples, Israel is mentioned seven or eight times. And what they did was they conflated rejecting Israel and rejecting Zionism with anti-Semitism. And they've been very, very successful. This campaign 
for governments and non-governmental organizations, universities, churches, you name it, to adopt the IHRA definition because there's a huge increase in anti-Semitism and anti-Semitism is on the rise and cases of attacks against Jews are on the rise and so on. And so we have to accept this new definition because saying that anti-Semitism is just racism against Jews is not good enough. We have to say that it can't, that it has to be, you know, there has to be an Israel element within it. Because now, even though it's non-binding and it's kind of only a working definition, once an institution you belong to, whether it's a governmental institution or an NGO or whatever the case may be, now you're kind of bound by it. So now if you say that Zionism, and this is one of the examples, if you say that Israel is a racist endeavor, now that qualifies as anti-Semitism. And they go county by county within the United States. Montgomery County, which is a, in Maryland, which is adjacent to Washington, D.C., just adopted this. In secret, by the way, nobody knew when, the, when this was going to happen. Nobody was part of the conversation. But whoop, suddenly people in Montgomery County woke up one day and discovered that now their county has adopted this new definition because they stand with our Jewish brothers and sisters and because we have to fight anti-Semitism. By all means, let's fight anti-Semitism. By all means. Racism has to be, you know, there has to be no tolerance for, for racism. There has to be no tolerance for anti-Semitism, which is why we need to be in opposition to Zionism because Zionism is, an, is a racist ideology. And they know that. So in order to prevent this erosion and the legitimacy of Zionism, and the legitimacy of Israel, they conflated the two, and they've done a very good job, as they always do, by the way, a very good job in presenting their case and pushing this campaign forward. And here we are today, where it's everywhere. The IHRA definition has been accepted, adopted by you know, practically everyone and everything. And the irony, of course, is that that in itself, the idea that Zionism and Jewishness are interchangeable is an anti-Semitic trope, Right. People, anti-Semites like to use the word Zionist as if it means Jews, the dual loyalty oath. So these very people who claim to be combating anti-Semitism are actually perpetuating it. Yeah, it's, it's, an absurd, it's an absurd notion. If you want to fight racism, we need to fight racism. You know, if we want to fight racism, we need to fight racism. We need to get to the, sort, to the roots of racism and we need to educate people and we need to make sure that, you know, uh, that anti-racism is something that we teach, that we practice, which is why we need to be anti-Zionist, you know? But um, they like to blur the line. They have to blur the lines or else they're going to lose their legitimacy. And that's exactly what they've been able to do. Yeah. Ali Abunima from Electronic Intifada says that organizations like ADL or APAC will both sides anti-Semitism. So they'll say, well, on the one hand, we have anti-Semites on the right who are white supremacists who shoot up synagogues. But on the other hand, on the left, we have people who support BDS, which, of course, totally trivializes anti-Semitism. Um, well, uh, we're going to open it up to questions. So how do, uh, let's see, we have hands up already. Hey, Katie, I was wondering if you could talk a little more about your cancellation from the Hill and what that entailed, because from watching Rising fairly frequently, Bree frequently has very critical opinions on Israel, and Glenn Greenwald also is on from time to time, and he's obviously no friend of the Zionists either. So I was just curious to understand more about what you said that was specifically so Bagus bad and their views and our eyes are offensive that made you canceled, but Bree, Glenn, and others are still allowed on. 
and they obviously have, I think, what you might say is fairly similar views to your own. Thank you. Sure. Thanks. Yeah. So I, um, really quickly, I would appear on Rising, on, on the Hill show Rising. I appeared on them like basically every week for three years. And as a guest, I would be critical frequently of Israel. I do know that Honest Reporting, which someone needs to do a deep dive into them, but Honest Reporting, I know, complained about one of my segments. They said, what the hill? That was what their article was called because they're real deep thinkers. And um, what I was told at at by the hill um, was that because I wrote this monologue so I, I was, a, I was a, a guest contributor. I was a weekly contributor. Then I started doing some hosting. And as a host, you write, you get to do these things called uh, radars, which are basically monologues straight to the camera. So I wrote and recorded a monologue straight to the camera that was defending Rashida Tlaib, who was attacked for describing Israel as an apartheid state. And then I was told by The Hill that you, uh, they don't do op-eds written or video about... Um, about Israel, Palestine. So now I think like the silver lining is that because they, I'm going to say lied uh, about why they, they told Brianna Joy Gray, who still works there. And she did a monologue on this herself. And then she came on my show and we did a joint stream about it. And she doesn't accept their claim that they, then they said it was a stylistic issue that that's why they didn't run the monologue. I mean, the guy, the editor-in-chief of The Hill told me over the phone that, you know, it was because they get a lot of pitches and they don't take all of them. They pass on some of them, which is just not the way it works. There's lit no editorial review whatsoever. You literally email the person, the team, your monologue, and they load it into the teleprompter. As Ryan Grimm points out, typos and all, which is not a dig at them at all. They're overworked, underpaid. But uh, the point is there's no editorial review process. Um, so yeah, I think that the silver lining is that now they won't be able to, I don't think fire someone or censor someone on this issue because they're claiming that it was stylistic and not ideological or content. So a friend of mine actually brought this up, like, uh, that Mark Lamont Hill was fired by CNN and, you know, Peter Beiner can now go on CNN, although we've, we could talk about that, but, but can go on CNN. And, and it's obvious that Mark Lamont Hill was fired because he's of what he said. Um, I guess that's how I would square that circle. So how can the Israeli left either build itself or rebuild itself for the benefit of peace for the entire region, including the Palestinians who are totally unsafe at the given moment, and it could get worse. Well, Israeli left, especially if we're talking about Zionist left, is an oxymoron, which is why it all but disappeared. And um, it, it, it happened, and in, in, it was a process. It was a gradual process. But claiming that you can be a Zionist and left is really absurd, Left Zionism is an absolute absurd, absurd notion. It's like being fascist left or something. It's absurd. Now, when these leftists, Israel so-called leftists, um, had to make a choice between values that you know that that are you know congruent with left values and being a Zionist, they all chose to be Zionists, and uh, people could see right through it. 
it's a lie. And they fizzled away, fizzled away, fizzled away. And now, of course, there's no, there, in, in the entire Israeli political map, there really is no Zionist left. It's dead. Uh, this last election, I think, was the final, the final straw. So it can't be revived because, again, Zionism and left, Zionism and peace are completely opposing ideas. What can happen is, um, another, or, or I should say this, expecting any kind of uh, um, revival or any kind of uh, support to come out of Israeli society um, is naive. It's never going to happen. It's impossible. I mean, the most popular politician today among Israeli youth is a man who was a student of Meir Kahana, Itamar Ben-Gvir. He is the darling of the press. He is the darling of the youth. People, if they have any kind of criticism against what happened, you know, with the last elections, is that Ben-Gvir is not prime minister. And so that's, that's gone. Uh, what we can do is we can sanction the hell out of Israel to a point where it collapses like a South, Af South Africa did. And then, you know, it's very funny because we talked to white South Africans today, almost all of them said, oh, no, we love Nelson Mandela. What are you talking about? We always supported Nelson Mandela, you know? You just wanted to keep him very safe in prison. Exactly. So they put him in a special place on an island of his own, you know, on an island. Uh, it was a resort. And so, I mean, this is the reality. So I think, I think one, the day after, of course, Israelis are going to wake up and there's going to be a new reality. The day after, meaning when, 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 when Zionism falls and Palestine becomes a free democratic state, then, you know, Israelis are going to wake up and they're going to, you know, have to live with it and they're going to be, it's going to be okay. But expecting that this will come from within, and it's an expectation that a lot of people have actually, um, is I think unrealistic, completely, completely unrealistic. It's never going to happen. Um, hi. Um, first of all, I want to thank you, Katie, for putting this on. Um, I think both of you have successfully radicalized me now, so I'm going to start putting up Palestinian flags where I see Ukrainian ones. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask about nonviolence, because I think that that is an amazing thing that you guys are using love as a weapon in Palestine. And Dr. King writes about this in his letter from a Birmingham jail, that nonviolence seeks to create this Socratic tension in the minds of the oppressor and people from a community that has not been able to negotiate to dramatize the issue to where they can't ignore it and they have to negotiate. And so with that, what does nonviolence mean to you, uh, Miko, today? And I, they're not here to answer this, but I would pose the same question. What do you think uh, your colleagues over in Palestine who are leading the nonviolent movement over there would say nonviolent nonviolence means to them today in today's context. Uh -oh. Like I said, it's, 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 I'll tell you why this is a difficult question right now. Um, Palestinians have tried and continue to try to engage in all forms of resistance from the most purest nonviolent like uh, Isa Amro and people like him to um, um, the brigades in Jenin and, 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 uh, and Nablus who have been engaged and, and in Jerusalem, parts of Jerusalem who have been engaged in armed resistance and pay and both, they all pay a very heavy cost. In other words, you know, Shirin Abakli never lifted a finger, never killed anyone, wouldn't dream of holding a gun. She was assassinated like that. Um, 
the uh, some incredibly charismatic and heroic young men in in Nablus and Janine are being uh, killed as we speak all the time, assassinated, being killed, and they fight. In other words, they're killed in in, in and they stand up, albeit with you know with rusted uh, guns that uh, you know and uh, that are rusty and, and and a handful of bullets and a t-shirt. Not nearly the kind of equipment that the the, the war machine of Israel has. Um, and then you've got, you know, throughout all of Palestine, in the Naqab, in, in Lid, in Ramle, in Yaffa, in the Galilee, throughout the entire country, you've got, you know, Palestinians who are uh, engaged in all forms of, of unarmed resistance. Some engage in the political process, some are doing it in writing, some protest and so forth. But none of them are safe. So... Um, what they would say today, I think they would all defend exactly what they're doing. And of course, I support Palestinians in whatever form of resistance they choose to engage because they're fighting a just fight. Um, and uh, again, I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not really quite sure how to answer that beyond this, beyond saying, you know, just, just what I said, which is that at this point, I just want to see somebody step in and save Palestinians. Because the ones who are standing up and fighting are getting killed, and the ones who are standing up without fighting are getting killed. And you heard Bassin Tamimi in that clip talk about stones. Some people criticize him and the Palestinians who throw stones at the army, and he's saying, we're defending ourselves. You know, there's another side to the story. I mentioned it in the book. I was That first time that I was in Abi Saleh that he described, and it was raining stones on the army. Um, and... Um, I was at his house and it was this war zone. It was unbelievable what was going on outside. Of course, the, the Israeli military has the weapons, the Palestinians have the stones. And, uh, and the, as we're at his house, you know, he's serving us breakfast and his mother was cooking, you know, she passed away since then. He gets a phone call from the local commander of the military asking him to tell the Palestinian kids or the Palestinian youth that are participating in the, in the protest just to, just to go home so that his soldiers can go home because it's a Friday and they want to go home for the weekend. I mean, think of this picture for a moment. I mean, it's, it's, it's out of this world, right? And, you know, he's chewing his breakfast and he says, no, nah, I don't think so. When you guys leave, they'll go home. Goodbye. And, you know, 20 minutes later, the guy calls again. He says, please tell your guys to go home. We are, my guys want to go home for the weekend. And he goes, sure. Yeah. As soon as you guys leave, we'll all go home. And people criticize him and, you know, the, the Palestinians who do throw stones. And he's saying, it's not stones. We're defending ourselves. They came to our village. We didn't, we didn't go to their village. They came to us. So again, I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think, uh, I think in the particular case of, of, uh, of Palestinians, I stand with all Palestinians and regardless of what form of resistance they choose and then let them explain why or what you know caused them to to use the the, the type of resistance that they found most useful thank you so much to uh, katie amico and thank you to the people's forum for hosting this event my concern was with the murder of uh, shireen abu akla and how people seemed so uh, people seem to celebrate that uh, in Israel, holding uh, Israeli flags. And I was very disturbed by the desecration of the mosque at Al-Aqsa and the settler Yaqub, 
who said that if uh, someone else is going to take this house if um, I don't take it. My question is a bit pessimistic, but is the situation hopeless? You know, we're talking about one state solution, two state solution. Are these things uh, sort of this sort of foreclosed that in the sense that you can't, uh, people in Gaza aren't even, they don't have access to electricity or water or food. Um, and that Israel is just winning by, um, despite the fault, they're just sort of, um, you know, if, if my, my question is this, calling for peace for nonviolence, is that really going to accomplish anything? Because fighting against apartheid uh, required, um, well, required, required uh, violence, uh, such as in Algeria and in South Africa. Um, are these, uh, you know, is the situation hopeless? How are we going to resolve this? I mean, we're talking about one state, two state. They're just dying. Uh, people in Gaza are just dying. How, how are we to solve Yeah, you, you really hit the nail on the head with this question. So I appreciate that. I mean, you, there are several questions within, within what you asked. Let's start with the hope thing. You know, I used to be Mr. Hope. And what I realized is that if there is hope, we have to create it. We're the hope. So if we create hope, there will be hope. But what is hope? What does hope look like? If we talk about Palestine, what does hope look like? What is, is it that we want to see? What is it that we believe in? It's not about one state, two state, because that conversation is a dead, dead end conversation. All of Palestine is a, single, is a single state right now. It's the apartheid state of Israel. And that's how it's going to stay. Unless we do something. Palestinians are doing everything they possibly can using all the means at their disposal, but they are locked up in a maximum security prison, being tortured and killed. So they're obviously, what they can do is limited by the conditions that Israel placed them. And of course, this total support from America and from the West, financial support and, and, and weapons and so on. So what are we going to do? Are we going to create hope? Because I think we can create hope and then we have to act in order to see that hope materialize. If we're talking about hope, I think hope looks like, you're asking me, hope looks like a, an absolute free Palestine from the river to the sea, the dismantling of the Zionist state, just like the dismantling of apartheid took place in South Africa. But that's going to require that we act. It's going to require that we demand our elected officials start talking about severe sanctions, boycotting Israel, you know, sending the Sixth Fleet to, 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 to call for a, uh, a no-fly zone over Gaza, if that's what it takes. I mean, we have to demand these things because we vote for the, elect for the officials that make the decisions for us. So if we don't act, this is what it's going to be like. And Al-Aqsa, if, if Al-Aqsa was in danger and desecrated until now, and I went on a couple of what they call tours with settlers on Al-Aqsa. I mentioned it in my, uh, if you go to micropella.com, there's all my stuff there. But, um, you know, I've got some video clips of walking through Al-Aqsa or what they call a temple mound with these settlers, thousands of them. Um, what they call the loyalist, the, the temple mount loyalists, which used to be a small, marginal, unimportant organization. Now they're calling the shots. They're going to be, they're going to have, some holding on to some really important portfolios in the Israeli government. And so if we thought they were desecrating Al-Aqsa until now, wait till they burn it down. 
to to build their temple. And this is I'm not I'm talking about imminent danger. I'm not talking about you know anything that's mythical here or that might happen in in, in some future uh, scenario. This is imminent. This is what these guys people want to do, and there's no reason why they can't do it. Um, and so I, the reality is grim, and 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 it could be hopeless unless we act. It's going to be it's going to continue the way it's going unless we get up, unless we act, unless we stop waiting for somebody else to do something. And our elect, we have to demand that our elected officials, and I'm talking about everyone from running anyone who is for school board, for city council, for county council, for mayor, police chief. I mean, all across the board, they have to denounce Zionism. They have to act against Zionism. They have to demand sanctions. They have to apply sanctions. Israel should not be allowed to participate in the Olympics, in the World Cup, in any sporting, cultural, diplomatic, academic sphere and space at all. That's how we win. That's how we create hope. That's how we make you know make hope uh, a reality. But unless we do all that, and unless that happens, there's no hope. So it's up to us. Yes, um, I like what you just said right there. And plus, um, I also warned my, let me, um, let me thank y'all, first of all, for coming here to the People's Forum. Um, actually, my name is, um, Michael J. Howard. Y'all can call me Mike for short. Um, I've been here plenty of times and, um, I saw what happened two years ago of Israeli police are killing um, Palestinian people with disability. And the reason I mention it because it frightens me because I have a disability myself. I have a mild intellectual disability and I don't know why these Israeli police are trained under former and about to be coming prime minister again under his under his watch. I don't understand why they do that to a Palestinian who has a disability. You know what I mean? I guess that's all I can think of. And, and, and one more thing. I like what you just said. I also do warn my people. I'm like, if you can, I be telling my people, if you cannot fight for your, I'm like, if you cannot let other people fight for you. You got to get up and do it yourself. Yeah, I mean, the question is how they, how do they shoot children? How do they torture children? How do they, you know, shoot and torture and arrest uh, people with disabilities? I mean, it, it's it's a it's a brutality uh, of a racist apartheid system, and and you know, certainly people in America, particularly people of color in America, this is this is not anything that's new to them. This is a reality that exists here too. It's horrifying, and we all have to stand up against it. Absolutely. Just one thing to add on the notion about around nonviolence. It brought to mind for me a Kwame Ture quote that in order for nonviolence to work, your oppressor oppressor has to have a conscience, and the United States has none. And I think that that's really analogous to the situation with Israel. If there's not a conscience there, then the nonviolence isn't going to work. Um, as well, the right to armed struggle is enshrined under international law, and we can't forget that, and we need to be more vocal about that, that that armed resistance is actually legal. My question for you is that given some kind of major shifts on the sort of global geopolitical stage, there's some slipping in the U.S. sort of hegemony 
Um, we're moving towards a multipolar world. Do you view that any of those changes that are happening as potential tailwinds in the fight for liberation for Palestine? I don't know. I can't. It's hard to say. I um. It's a. It's it's a. It's uh. I don't know how to answer that. But I will. I want to say something about what you said about the uh, the non armed resistance. You know, the, in two thousand five, Palestinians embarked on what they called the the popular unarmed resistance. It started in a small village in Bilain, then it went to Nabi Saleh, then it went. It spread throughout Palestine, and it was met with enormous amounts of violence to the point where it's done. It's dead. It's finished. It was completely killed. Palestinians, you know, when the generation of Palestinians who started this in 2005, now their kids are all being in jail, thrown in jail and being tortured and beaten. It's that bad. And so that it was, it was wiped out with the Israeli violence, by Israeli violence. And, you know, I used to go to these protests a lot and the, the violence by the Israelis was just, was just unbelievable. I mean, unbelievable. I remember going, taking people from time to time to these and they would see the violence and they couldn't understand it. It was a really good way to, for people to understand Palestine is to see what took place in these, in these uh, uh, demonstrations. But, you know, I mean, I don't know how to, how to answer the, se the second part of the question with the, with the international, but I do know this. There is no parent today to the Palestinian issue. You know, in South Africa, you had the ANC, you had the South African Communist Party, you know, you had, and they had some support. Today, there, there's nothing. I mean, there's no, there used to be this non-aligned uh, group of countries that were supported the Palestinians, it used to be Eastern Europe. Nothing exists anymore. So there's really nobody who is behind the Palestinians, supporting the Palestinians internationally in any way, in any significant way. And that is a serious, serious problem. Hi, I'm sorry, I'm kind of nervous. But um, do you think that there's a, a linkage between settler colonial entities, like fortresses, like we have in this country and Europe and Israel, the opposition to um, settler colonial empires that are going to be just worse and worse on people on their borders, you know, just in the proximity of their borders? Do you think that shared opposition, does that exist to any linkage between different uh, settler colonial fortresses. That's my question or statement. Yeah, certainly there are. There is a linkage, of course. And I think the more we oppose uh, settler colonialism, the better. You know, it's interesting. Israelis hate it when you call Israel a settler colonial state. They absolutely reject it. But in Hebrew, when you look at the street names, you look at the names of plazas, you look at the entire discourse, settlers, colonizers, Conquerors are really very, very positive concepts, and you see them everywhere. I'll meet you on the corner of Settler and Conqueror. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was meeting uh, Omar, who, who works for Zahrat, who, who, who talked about the Lifta in the little clip. I was supposed to meet him uh, at some point, and he said, "Well, I'll meet you. <laughs> I'll meet you at the at the Conquerors uh, or the Settlers parking lot." And I said, "Where?" And that's the name of the street, and that's the name of the plaza, and that's the name, you know, Settler. My sister lives on the Settler's Road, you know, on Settler's Road. Everybody, there's a Settler Road, Conqueror's Road, Occupier's Road, everywhere. In Hebrew, the discourse is full of these terms, and it's very positive. But don't you dare say Settlers or Colonizers or Settler Colonial when you talk about Israel in English. It's very interesting. Maybe, let's see, we have to wrap soon, well, but the, he has to use a facility. Um, by the way, I want to thank um, Just World Books for helping put this together. Helena's from there. Um, 
Does anyone have any questions for just me? I know I'm not as exciting, but okay. We got one. Whoever has questions for just me, let's have them go. Yeah, I don't know how familiar you are with, with Israeli politics and Miko might know a little bit more, but... Maybe, just a abyssal, yeah. <laughs> but I know that like in Israel, there's a proportional party representation system. They don't have congressional districts. Here we have congressional districts and states. That tends to mean that it's almost always one of the two major parties that wins every election, even for Congress, stuff like that. Do you think there are any advantages and disadvantages to a proportional system with official parties, but no official congressional districts like Israel has? If we had something like that in the U.S., would that help break the duopoly of the uh, of the parties that we have here? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say, yeah. I mean, but I would say, yeah, I don't, I don't have the, you mean parliamentary system? Would that break a duopoly? Yes, I think it would. I mean, then you have kind of unofficial duopolies or non-duopoly duopolies anyway, but yeah. Thanks for that very tailored for me question. Yeah. No one has something for someone who was born on the Upper West Side, like real micro niche. Oh yeah, Sarah. Okay. Maybe I don't have to ask my question now. No, but I, I was, um, I agree very much with what Miko said about us having to push our representatives and us having to push for sanctions. Um, and as you, somebody from the United States, somebody from the Upper West Side, like, how, how do we actually do that? Like, how possible is that actually in the climate that we are? And how do we organize to do that? And how, how can people work towards that? How to organize around this issue? Uh, for both of us, but I'll cede it to you out of respect. I don't honestly know, to be totally transparent, I feel like you were talking about hope and people cite the example of South Africa a lot, which obviously is comparable in some ways, but there is the thing that South Africa didn't have to deal with, which was the weaponization of anti-Semitism, which I think we have to just be totally honest about because it is such a cudgel used against, as, as you pointed out with the you know working definition of anti-Semitism. It's so unique. I mean, Israel settler colonialism is anachronistic. Nora Erika talks about this. It's not really unique. It's kind of unique in terms of when it happened. But I don't know how we can. I mean, you were saying it's not going to come from within. I think that's that's certain. But it's just such a the perfect storm of Jewish Zionists and then Christian Zionists, and which is a nice thing. If anyone's saying that criticizing Zionism is anti-Semitic, you can just tell them they're a bunch of Christian Zionists, which is a useful thing to bring in. But I don't know how we can do it, honestly. I don't know. Well, you know, we can learn from the other side. Oh, we can always take, take our cues from the other side. I mean, we have to be zealots. The other side are zealots. The Zionists are zealots. APAC. All the way APAC, all the way down to every little NGO that exists in every city, in every town, in every county in the U.S. They're zealots. They absolutely been, believe in what they do, and they will stop at nothing, which is why they're successful. They also have money. Well, that's part of the being zealots is knowing how to is raising money, is knowing how to raise money and understanding the importance of money and understanding. And they understood this very early on that all politics is local. That's why you have all these wonderful Zionist Jews who, you know, donate to the library and donate to the symphony and they do it because they live in the community and they're, and, you know, they're philanthropic. But then how could you possibly criticize Zionism when you know that so-and-so that just saved the symphony is a Zionist and loves Israel and works with Israel? And how can you, you know what I mean? They create this network of positivity surrounding Zionism. And because they're zealots, they do it very well. 
And we just don't do that. We're not zealots enough. We're not standing up enough. We are not organized enough, you know. It's about as simple as, as, as I'll give you an example. I met this uh, in D.C. just recently, this young man who was interning in one of the Senate offices. He said to me, we get 300 emails a day from Stand With Us. That's just one Zionist organization. 300 emails a day to one senator's office from one Zionist organization. And he said to me, do you know how many we get from Palestinians? What do you think? None. And there's, they're, they're well-organized, but the reason they're well-organized is that they're true believers. They are zealots, and they were always zealots. From the days of my grandparents, uh, who were zealots, and my father's generation, who were zealots, uh, to this day. You know, and, they, and zealotry is contagious. And they do it very, very well. We have to become zealots. We have to become, we have to stop waiting for some, you know, somebody to come and save Palestine. We have to do it. We have to talk to our friends. We have to talk to our neighbors. You know how many times I hear, well, you know, we don't really talk about it with my Jewish friends because I don't want to offend anybody. Why don't you want to offend them if they're Zionists? Why would you let them offend you with their Zionism, but you won't offend them back? You know what I mean? Why? I don't understand this. So it's important to become zealots on this issue. And sometimes people are going to look at you like you're crazy, but give somebody a book, organize a book club, organize a meeting, organize a, that, that book, well, there's, you know, thank you. Um, and, and, you know, invite people to speak, go, uh, invite other people to come and listen to somebody speak. You go ahead and start speaking. You know, everybody in this room is now, you know, better informed, hopefully than you were when you walked in. Let's go all go out there and do more and make sure that your elected officials, everybody from, I don't know, dog catcher to, to school board to anybody else gets an email from you at least once a day. Set up multiple accounts. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is how it happens. There's no other way to do it. They're winning because they've been doing it for a long time, because they're good at it, because they're zealots, and they're 10 years ahead of us, if not more, if not more. And uh, if we want to prevent, let me put it this way, even harsher, Palestinian children alive today that if we met here next month are going to be dead. There are lots of them not to mention adults, not to mention activists, not to mention fighters. They're going to be dead next month because we're not there, because we're not zealots enough. It's that serious. So if we really care, we got to do more. We got to do more. We got to be more creative. We got to talk to more people. We got to buy, you know, to give people books to read if they like to read books or, 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 or whatever the case may be. There's so much information. There's so much, there's so many options out there today. Um, you know, find Isamro on social media, ask him, what can we do? What can we do? When can you come to America and give a talk, you know, or, or Basim or, and find out what the process is like for Palestinians to get a visa to come to America, a visa. Isamro, in order to get a visa, has to go from Hebron to Jerusalem because that's where the interviews take place. Except there's a little problem. You know what that is? He's not allowed to go to Jerusalem. So he has to somehow smuggle himself, either clear the wall, which some people have to do, or pay somebody to drive him illegally, because that's the only way to get the interview at the, at, the, at the consulate or the embassy in Jerusalem for Palestinians to get a visa. And the Americans know this, of course. So just that part. And then this trip across, because Palestinians uh, like Asa can't fly from 
the Tel Aviv airport, which, by the way, sits on the occupied city of Lid, occupied Palestinian city of Lid, that's Tel Aviv airport. He has to go to Amman, Jordan and cross the, and, and cross the river there, cross the bridge. And with the, what takes place when he crosses the bridge, the interrogations he has to go through, hours and hours and hours. And then on the way back, the same thing, and on and on and on. You know, find him on social media, send him a message, find out. What can we do? What can I do to help you? And there's lots of Palestinians out there that you can, that you can find that do great work. How do we support them? How can we invite you to come and speak here? You know, there's so many things that we can do, but we, you're not going to do it if we're laid back. We have to become zealots. We've got to learn from them. We've got to do what they do. There's not even a flag, a Palestinian flag in Washington, D.C. There's not a single official office, not a single space in Washington, D.C. with a Palestinian flag. Nothing, not even a restaurant. There's more, I think, in Brooklyn Palestinian flags than there are in Washington, D.C. You know, that's part of the problem. We have to wrap. So let's just take, um, just say your questions in 10 seconds, lightning round, and then some, we, we may not get to all of them, but just get these here because they've been waiting and you'll respond to them all in one fell swoop. And then, because we want him to be able to sign his books. All right. Hey, thanks a lot. Uh, just a quick question about sanctions, because I always get a little jumpy when I hear that word. When we talk about sanctions, are we talking about targeted sanctions at the business interests and the others who keep this going? Or are we talking about a blanket sanction on the Israeli people? Just because oftentimes those kinds of sanctions wind up backfiring in their effect and actually get people to serve as a propaganda against the rest of the world and to get them rallied behind whatever regime is there. So I, I guess the question is targeted or general. What, what do you have in mind when you speak of sanctions that we advocate for? Okay, so we got the sanctions question. Yeah. Um, going back quick to your, your point about uh, well, the nomenclature of uh, let's say, settlers or conquerors in Israeli society. I guess for you personally, Miko, what's your, like, what was your upbringing and how did your family treat, like, let's say, the, um, the origins of the Israeli state, the Nakba, and uh, how that basically, was that informed? Like, were you informed of that growing up or was that uh, just kind of glossed over in the service of good PR? Okay, settlers, Nakba. Up here we have someone who's been... Uh, being myself a Mizrahi... And I was, uh, and I have read your book, uh, kind of, uh, your book through my wife, because she will stop me even during your show to read the excerpts from it. And uh, it's really a wonderful book. I was thinking what you, if you have any ideas about uh, in regard to the class structure in uh, regard to the Zionist project of uh, getting rid of the Palestinians, or the oppression of the Palestinians, as you, however you want to call it. And this, uh, just out of curiosity, how would you call the future one state? What name you would uh, give it? I think that's all we have time for. Your question, you just, just read the book. Sorry to be that person, but it's in the book. So this is sanctions and the, the class question. Well, I think in the case of Israel, there has to be absolute sanctions against any representation of the state of Israel in any space, period. Israeli, it's gonna, it has to be like it was done in South Africa. I mean, the South Africans couldn't travel. They couldn't import. They couldn't export. They couldn't go anywhere. If you hosted an event and invited a South African delegation, you would be sanctioned. You would be penalized. And that's exactly how it needs to be. That's what it takes. And, you know, comparing that to sanctions in Iraq, for example, which was a terrible crime, 
we shouldn't compare those two. This is a completely different kind of uh, set of circumstances. I was raised, uh, the way I heard about the, the, the 1948, the Nakba was uh, how heroic we were. My father fought in this, uh, in this heroic battle. We were the few against the many. We were the David against Goliath. They came to kill us and we survived with a handful of bullets and, you know, whatever, the whole myth. Are you kidding me? When I heard about the Nakba in the beginning, I thought somebody was, uh, there were, the people that were telling me about the Nakba were out of their minds. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. It's like they're saying to me, it's day when it's night and it's night when it's day. What are you talking about? We were the heroes. They attacked us, you know? So that's how I heard about the Nakba. That's, so for me, this was a huge, uh, a huge thing. And, and that, that was a story. Uh, not glossed over, but, you know, magnified in, in heroism. Uh, and then the issue, the story of the, of, of, you know, the classes, I mean, the Zionism was intended for, you know, good, wealthy European Jews. They didn't show up. Even after the Holocaust, the survivors didn't want to come. Very few Holocaust survivors actually ended up coming to what became Israel. And so the Zionists look around them and they said, well, let's bring the Arab Jews. And I'm sure you know the story. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. And they became, you know, they came, they were sprayed with DDT when they, when they landed and they were treated like, you know, nobody would want to associate with them, certainly not have their daughters date them, uh, certainly not have them live in their neighborhood. And they were put in camps and slums. And it didn't matter if they were doctors or engineers or teachers, they all had to be manual laborers and that sort of thing. And that's a big part, you know, the, the, the color of your skin is a big factor in how successful you are in Israeli society. Israeli society is a very racist society, not only towards Palestinians, but any people of color, without any doubt, without any question. And that's a whole other tragedy uh, on its own. Uh, yeah, because we want to leave some time for books. Thank so. you again, everybody. And let's do something in free Palestine. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.